Christine Axsmith, The Tell. We talk about cults, quacks, conspiracy theories. And today we have a special guest, Dylan Selterman, coming to us from Johns Hopkins University, where he teaches psychology. We're going to disagree about the topic of coercive persuasion and getting indoctrinated online via social media. Okay, here we are. Dylan, I want to talk to you because, like, we don't agree. But I, I know you are, I don't know, smart, educated, and I'm not. And so that's why I want to talk to you about your ideas about this space and uh, talk to me. Like, so tell us a little bit about your educational background so people can have an idea, you know. Sure. Yeah. Well, I am a social and personality psychologist. Okay. I'm an associate teaching professor at Johns Hopkins. So oh, I primarily teach undergraduate courses in psychology and mm -hmm. I do a little bit of research on social and, and interpersonal processes. My research interests include things like um, attraction and relationships, well-being, dreams, and now I'm getting more into political psychology, morals and ethics, that kind of thing. That's really interesting. And it really dovetails with what I deal with, except on the opposite side. So that's why I wanted to talk to you. I am merely an enthused amateur. Right okay. now, there's this book. It's called, among many books that I've read, Understanding Lone Actor Terrorism. And it's a series of essays. And so I think that, again, Doug, like, it's a synergy with what we're talking about, which I wanted to talk about, which was online radicalization. Right. And so I'm not going to summarize what you think, because you think it reads so much more than me. What is your thought process about when someone says online radicalization to you? What, what do you think? Um, well, it it happens a non-zero number of times. I mean, I, I think this is something that we should be concerned about because in the context of something like, you know, violent radicalization, even a very small number of people can cause a lot of damage. I mean, we saw that 20 years ago with September 11th, and we know that even, even 19 people can be responsible for untold, you know, death and destruction. So this is a problem. I think the main thing that I hear very often in mainstream media and po political and social commentary is that the social media platforms that are so prevalent in our lives are ultimately responsible for this. And that I don't see any evidence for. I, I, I th th this is this is where I kind of get off the train. I, I, I don't I don't see evidence in the research literature that the social media algorithms people think are the problem are actually causing this problem. But it is a problem. Oh, okay, <laughs> sure. good. I, I was going to say explain QAnon, but you know, um, you now I understand. So, what do you think the problem is? Well, I think there's a number of things we can point to in the psychology literature to explain this. I think one 
one caveat I'll give is that, you know, depending on someone's academic backgrounds, they may prefer different kinds of explanations for this behavior. So political scientists might point to aspects of our political system that are underlying causes of the problem. Economists might point to uh, economic factors that are the underlying cause of the problem. And those ideas, I think, certainly have a lot of validity. Like perhaps if we switched to a system that gave people more uh, direct influence and control over politics, there would be less radicalization. I, as a psychologist, tend to focus more on psychological explanations. So, for example, people's belief in conspiracy theories tends to be predicted by a feeling that there's a kind of lack of uh, clear norms in society and the perception of corruption. So when people believe that there's corruption in politics and normlessness, that is, there's a kind of social anarchy, then they're more drawn to conspiracy theories. And so you mentioned QAnon, I think that's probably a good example. Um, And, you know, with regards to something like social media, I think that these platforms like Twitter, Facebook, Reddit, Instagram, TikTok, they, they, they provide a platform for people to communicate their ideas and their anger. And if we focus on the social media platforms, we're basically focusing on the symptom rather than the underlying root cause of the problem. So the underlying root cause of the problem is, I think, more complex, but ultimately the thing that we really need to focus on if we are going to solve those problems. When people go online and express anger and misinformation, we need to understand why they're doing that in the first place. And those questions are more difficult to answer, but I think are the questions that we really need to answer. Wow. That is that is really interesting that it's a symptom. Now, and I, for whatever it's worth, agree. These are symptoms. When you talk, when you listen to people uh, who are leaders in anti-cult indoctrination, their answer is always cognitive. It's always, we need to learn about dark, and I'm dark pattern persuasion. We need to learn, and, and if people are educated, then they won't fall for it. But that's not true. Educated until, in fact, all the leaders in the anti-cult movement were once in cults. So for them to say, oh, it's all prefrontal cortex to me. You know, let's educate them. They have, like, apparently they don't have to know that that's not dealing with the underlying motivations. Now, I've heard... I've read that conspiracy adherents, they like to feel like they're special. Like, so the, the draw is you're special. You're in on the secret. And um, that's a feeling. Yeah. And, and, and why would that feeling be an answer? That feeling's an answer because you're feeling powerless and not heard. Right. Yeah. Okay. Now I'm going to mix it up a bit. And I'm going to talk about hypnosis. So do you you see hypnosis as part of 
what draws people in to um and, and, and generally speaking you know my tagline is cults quacks and abuse because it's coercive control that's that's my thing and you know like i said as a rank enthused amateur but that's what i read about but my approach of course not being academic is very wide so i've read a lot about hypnosis and that particularly with QAnon and some extreme religious groups that hypnosis plays a role in drawing people into conspiracy theories and drawing people into extreme beliefs. Now, what are your thoughts about that? Well, okay, let me let me follow up your question with another question. Can, can you can you give a brief definition of what you mean by hypnosis? Like, I think I think for some folks, they'll hear hypnosis and they'll think of someone in a therapist's office sitting on a couch and they're holding up a little watch and swaying it from side to side. You're getting sleepy. Like, there's a, a very specific thing that people are thinking about with hypnosis. So I, I assume that's not what you have in mind, but maybe you could give us a, a, a working definition for what you are calling hypnosis. Well, thank you, Dylan. This is why I invite people smarter than me and more educated than me, right? You call me out on the details. So it's rhythmic, repetitive, uh, thought-stopping slogans. I hate to act it out. What if someone takes a clip of this and they're like, and there she is, Christine Axsmith, you know, acting like a freak. And that you see it, it's, it'll be pounding, repeating, pounding, repeating of the same message. And, and that is hypnotic. And it does invoke different brain processes. And that's, that's what I'm talking about. But, um, also to the repetition, but also cable news where you've got, and I'm not just talking about one channel here. Um, you, you have the, the white replacement theory on one end and Russiagate on the other okay. where you've got, it, it, it's a constant re repetition, constant repetition. So what are your, what are your thoughts? If you can pick anything up for my very kludgy attempt at an explanation here. But like I said, I want to talk to you because I want to learn. Like, I know, I don't know anything and you do. That's right. why you're here. Um, so yeah, I, I, I have some thoughts on this. First of all, um, with regards to the more, I guess, old school definition of hypnosis that I was alluding to, there's little evidence that you can hypnotize someone who does not want to be hypnotized. And I think that idea is also applicable to what you're describing. Whereas there's a kind of, there's a supply and then there's also demand. Mm -hmm. So you're, you're describing this, this tendency for some in mainstream media and on uh, internet media to just repeat the same things ad nauseum. And some people crave that. So when we talk about the effects of media on how people think or how people feel, to me, the discourse, it really seems to imply something that I think is false, which is that the audience is this like passive blob that's just absorbing stuff and not actively involved in the process. 
Whereas I take the view that the audience is really the driving factor here. In fact, in one of my articles recently for my blog, I wrote a brief passage about audience capture and how that actually drives the extremist content from creators. Now, I said in the article, and I'll say here in our conversation, that there's actually not a lot of research on this. So we're talking about it with a, a bit of speculation. I, I don't know exactly how the psychology of audience capture works in terms of the scientific investigations here. So we need to be careful about how much we can say about that. But I think the broader point is that these things in media that you're describing, they only happen because there is an existing existing audience that craves this type of content. In, in, in a way, they are actually, I think, more responsible for the presence of the content than the creators themselves. So I, I hesitate to say that it's a hypnotic effect. I think, you know, if, if, if you look at the existence of lots of different types of content creators, entertainers, musicians, athletes, like the reason that they're successful is because there's a, you know, there's huge audiences for those things and they like them and they consume it. So let's focus on them. You know, let's focus on the demand side of things. Wow. I'm, I'm writing this down. This is a lot of food for thought here for my tiny brain. But, and so this is, I, I've written about, and this all got started 2015 for me. And I started with Hannah Arendt, Origins of Totalitarianism, that she did. And, and I've done a lot of fascist reading. Um, if you're, you could go to my Substack and the about, and you could read like my reading list. So I wrote about fascism and Trump. And I... it, this is touchy, but it is not classic fascism. In classic fascism, people follow the leader wherever. But in the Trump model, he follows his followers because he does. If he steps off what they want, they're like, they like reject him. And so he's, it's not fascism in the true sense where you've got people following the leader, putting the leader in a godlike position. I know we've heard some rhetoric about Trump being raised to the level of a deity, but he's not. Because if he does one thing that they don't like, they'll turn on him on a dime. So I'm integrating as I'm talking, like what you said, because it, 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 it very much is similar to what I've observed. And in the social media age, the audience is the driver. People are only influencers because people follow them. And I certainly, I've been a long-term nut about YouTube, okay? I'm a YouTube nut. Um, I was a litigating lawyer, and I can watch classic modern trials from beginning to end. And oh my God, I love it. Hours of watching trials. So, um, but what I, what I have noticed is titans, titans on that platform lose their audience, fall away, all that stuff. So that really underlines what you've just said. It, it underlines that they're not influencers, they're really followers. That yeah. they're following their people. And, and, and we have the whole Jimmy Dore experience, which, 
you probably not being into what they called bread tube, which is, you know, leftist YouTube. Um, he was with TYT and he left because he said something inappropriate. He's a stand-up comic, okay? I've done, I've done a couple stand-up comic gigs. They're like totally inappropriate people. So they put him in a corporate environment. Of course he says something inappropriate. And so then they say, you have to apologize. We'll let it go. He's like, no, I'm not going to apologize. I quit. And so he quit. And the reason I say this, okay, is it's another perfect example of what you're talking about. Okay. He left. He took a chunk of the audience with him. And he was a progressive guy. But a whole bunch of right-wingers started to follow him and his message changed right. and changed. And sure, he's got a huge audience. Thousands of people watch him when he goes live and he doesn't even announce when he's going to go live. You know, it's like they all get the beeps on their phone and go, oh, he's live, and they click, you know, and talk, Bleh, we hate Democrats, Bleh, you know. And so he's following his audience to the right wing, which I guess would be right. You know, um, the I hate Democrats crowd, which started out as I'm a socialist, I hate Democrats, and morphed into I'm a right winger and hate Democrats. Right. Vaccine suspicion and all kinds of things, all kinds of things. That's, that's, it just, again, like I'm integrating as I'm talking, but that's another example. So, wow, I mean, Oh, if one of those Kardashians, you know, came out and said, you know what, I, I'm wearing long underwear for the summer, you know, a few people would do it, but she'd take it down in two seconds flat. You know what I mean? Okay, so whatever. Um, this is going to be my listeners, all 15 of them, uh, listening to me go, wow, 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 a lot, and there you go. That's, that's really big. I might have you back if that's that's okay, because like I've got to integrate in whatever and whatever, and then I'm like, Dylan, Dylan, you got to talk to me. But I do want to say, now you don't believe one part of the brain hijacks another part of the brain. Am I right? Like, we're talking the amygdala. The, right. the famous amygdala hijack. Um, so I'll just say as a caveat before talking about this more, that neuroscience is not my immediate area of expertise. So... Uh, you know, take what I'm saying with a grain of salt and definitely, you know, ask some brain science experts for more on that. Um, that being said, so do you, you want to say a little bit more about what you have in mind with this idea of the amygdala hijack? Oh, yeah, sure. Uh, the part of the brain that passes between the the lower feeling part of the brain and the prefrontal cortex thinking part of the brain. And that with exhaustion, I'm going to say malnutrition, but really just weird eating rules, constant busyness, that the part of your thinking, there's a disconnection, like an enforced disconnect and then isolation. I always talk about the first step and coercive control is really isolating you from your friends and your family and your support group. And then pulling you into a dynamic of hurting you, but rescuing you. So that's, um, that's the overall, like if you were talking the formula for, uh, for coercive control. 
that's kind of what we're talking about. So with the amygdala, it would be overloading that with all these rules, with starvation, weird dietary restrictions, exhaustion, uh, sleep deprivation, isolation. And so you don't have time to reflect and you don't have time to think. And that's, and then to keep up the cycle, keep up the cycle. So that's what I'm talking about. All right. Um, well, there's a lot there. Now, with regards to this type of manipulative tactic that you're describing, I assume that's not what you mean when we're talking about mass media communication. Like if you're talking about a, you know, a local cult leader having a direct influence on some individual in the community by harming them directly in some way, that's very different from the type of mass communication that someone might assume but that that might consume on YouTube or well, I, I do I do want to say there's been a transition where people are are following online and doing this stuff especially during the the pandemic that the weird diets the hours of media consumption the isolation from friends and family. So another version of this, it's not as powerful as walking into a Mooney compound. Absolutely. But elements of, or at least shadows of elements are still there. So, so you're right. What I'm, this is, you're right in a lot of what you're saying, but people are noticing it happening online too. So whatever you could pull out of that mishmash, please, Dylan. All Dr. Right, no, Selterman. I, I, I just wanted to, to clarify because, uh, yeah, I, I mean, there, so, someone broadcasting on YouTube cannot possibly force one of their audience members to like change their diet. So this is kind of what I was saying before. There has to be some willing demand on the side of the audience to kind of ad adopt those behaviors or something like that, which is very, very different from someone in your community coming in and having a, a coercive influence on an individual. But to, you know, your, your earlier question about what's going on in people's brains, we're actually just talking about this a little bit in my intro psych class yesterday. I was telling my students that there is no discrete division between thinking and feeling parts of the brain, those things are not separable in terms of cognition. And I think this is a widespread misunderstanding. It's kind of, it's it certainly as, is. It, it certainly it, is. It, it's, it's sometimes referred to as a neuro myth that somehow the, the, the brain process for emotion and the brain process for like critical thinking is, are, are just different from each other. And really, all aspects of our cognition contain some emotional elements and very often our thought processes contain a lot of emotion in them and and the emotions we have are what allow us to make decisions yeah so in fact, and when, when, when we have a some part of our brain is disrupted in terms of functioning with regards to emotional processing that very often impairs our ability to think logically 
and to think critically about information. Now, so, I, I do want to put a, a little footnote here from my experience. You can have extremely intelligent people, but they can't make a decision. So, I mean, I understand if you're in a culture that rewards genius and you're smart, you know, that um, you rely on that and you completely underdevelop the other part and then you can't make decisions. Just saying. Go ahead. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I, I think that's important to keep in mind. And with regards to something like if, if, if you're if you're doing some kind of study with a brain scan technology and you observe increased brain activation, which is sometimes measured by blood flow or sometimes measured by electrochemical signals, and you see more of it in one part of the brain than another part of the brain, that doesn't mean that something is being hijacked. That doesn't mean that one part of the brain is overwhelming the process of the other part of the brain. That's that's not an accurate interpretation of the data. All it really just tells us is that there's more activity in one part than another part. But really, all of the brain is active at all time. Like the brain is holistic. You've got your your whole brain is doing everything together, and all you're talking about is a relative difference in uh, the amount of processing in one area of the brain or another. So uh, again, most of the studies using things like fMRI methods, for example, or other types of brain imaging, th they don't necessarily tell us that there is a hijacking going on. So that that's that's why that's why I I don't like that that phrase because that's okay. not that, that's not what a brain scan tells us is happening. Okay. So the whole idea of it's not an amygdala hijack it's just it's strictly affect like all we're seeing is the effect of sleep loss malnutrition isolation constant rep repetition we're seeing the effect of it but we can't attribute that to a dissectable body part that's what you're saying well i mean because we see we see it, brainwashing has been going on centuries this is not it's a human brain so this idea of of doing this there's been cults around for thousands of years but it's not tied to a specific part of the brain and that's what i'm hearing well so yeah and, and brainwashing is another term that seems to imply you're kind of getting in there inside people's skulls and like manipulating something in their brain to make them you know think or act differently so again just just to uh reiterate what we were saying before you know there is a very real and dangerous threat from somebody who's trying to be a cult leader and directly manipulating and influencing a community member in a negative way, that's not the same thing as what we're talking about on social media platforms. But to your question, okay, regardless of where this is happening, what's going on in people's brains that could help us understand this, I'm not sure that that analysis of brain activity or brain activation is necessarily going to help us understand that process, that psychological process more deeply. Because anything that we do, anything, literally anything, riding a bike, falling in love, eating food, 
yes, you know, following some uh, extremist content creators online, like anything that we do is going to be connected to some kind of brain process. Right. And so what what is that really doing for us? It's not it's not deepening our understanding of the phenomenon or how to solve it. Now, I'm just I'm thinking, right? And of course, now we've got this plethora. Actually, France has just declared yoga cults a problem, and they're going to start. Mm. And and there are yoga cults. What okay. what is a yoga cult? Well, it starts with yoga and wellness, and then it devolves into the usual thing: um, you cutting off contact with family, giving them lots of money for classes. So that, so that's it. That it would be, it would be, and then wellness, which means buy my special juice, uh, buy more of it, you know, buy it for your friends, you know. So I, it's a little crude, but I, I have this idea. Every cult is about having their hand in your wallet or their hand in your pants. Okay. That, that every cult is about that. So what I'm, I'm trying to say is, You've got people who start walking in to say Scientology, and they're they're not open to all the the Xenu, the sect chats. They but they they are open to it. That's, that's you're saying they are, and they don't get persuaded along the way. No, I'm I'm saying if you if you are in that situation where you're going into the Scientology office or any other type of you know, cultish uh, community atmosphere. There, there is a part of you that's looking for meaning in life. That's oh. looking for answers. That's looking for you know. Please help me to uh, solve this problem in my life. Whether it's you know mental illness or some other kind of psychological distress. Like there, there is something that craves what they're offering. That's that's kind of what I'm saying. Here. Yeah, and. I'm going to say, yeah, absolutely. They want to feel either important, their life has meaning, they want to have control in their life. The standard, you know, we could go on and on. There's a lot of motivations that get people in the door. But they didn't walk in the door willing to lock a co-worker in Scientology dungeon for three days for for misbehaving. They didn't walk in with that. They how, were how, do you, how do you know rude. they weren't willing to do that when they walked in? Um, okay, let's take another example, human trafficking, because this is the grooming of predators. They didn't meet, okay, because I'm, I don't have a concrete example except what ex-Scientologists have said and quoting them. But we can take another example, of course, of control, and that's gangs and human trafficking and also abusive relationships. No woman or man walked into a relationship saying, yeah, um, I'm going to get put in the hospital a couple times a year because he beats the crap out of me or she beats the crap out of me or steals all my money or nobody walks in with that. Oh, I think you agree. Or when a teenager who's being abandoned and neglected or worse at home connects with someone online, they're... They're not walking in saying, yeah, I'm going to be a hooker, a street hooker, and get beat up all the time. So there is a process of persuasion, if you will. 
And those are extreme examples. Also gangs, the same thing with gangs. They, they provide a family, that, a structure you're not getting at home or that you need, or just to keep from getting beat up on the streets. And then you're isolated, it escalates. And so there's an escalation persuasive process in there that takes you from when you walk in the door, whatever door that is, and when you're fully in. So that, that's also an interest. And it's not, if not the amygdala hijack, which I apparently am never gonna say again, but um, now what are your thoughts about what I've just said? Or do you feel that it's not a comparable process? Well, okay. So with regards to the abusive relationships example that you gave, I think that is a psychologically different process than with these, you know, community type things going on, like with cults or with gangs. Okay, so you don't with, think it's coercive control in both. You think one is coercive control no, and the other one isn't. Well, I, there, there, there can be some areas of overlap in, in terms of, you know, people relinquishing control and, you know, being in these kind of toxic dynamics. I guess, you know, when, what sticks out to me and what we see in the literature on something like abusive relationships between spouses is there's there's a in many cases a romantic attachment that's still there and you also have economic dependency that could happen in the context of a cult or a gang as well with regards to the 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 psychology though i mean if you have a spouse or significant other who is abusive but you're still depending on them for some aspect of your well-being i do think that's different from the initial person who's looking for meaning or looking for someone to help solve their problem, they're looking for community, and then going into the atmosphere of a cult. But I I just want to say, like, for just as, as a caveat, the psychology of abusive relationships and the psychology of these kind of cult or gang memberships is not my immediate area of expertise. I do I do think, though, that those things are very, very, very different from the kind of political strife that we're seeing in mainstream or social media. I, I, I think in general, the way in which people express things like people will express, for example, a strong dislike of other political parties or other politicians in the outgroup, that's more akin to sports rivalries. Like people yes. will. Yes. Oh my God. Yes. Yes. This, this, this is. It's. It's much more. It's much more benign. And that's not to say that it is objectively benign, but relative to those other things that we're talking about, it's to me that it's. It's a much different psychological and behavioral and emotional process. So, with regards to this idea of you know brainwashing and manipulation that does happen in cults in gangs. And, you know, maybe there are similarities between that and uh, abusive relationships. Yeah. So whatever whatever similarities or differences are going on there, I don't think those things are comparable to what's happening in terms of, you know, someone logging on and watching a YouTube clip about how the Republican or Democratic Party is corrupt. Do you see a path from the video about 
ex-party is corrupt to the suggestive, the algorithm suggestion that something else is lying to you to, like, can you see, you, you don't see that there's a suggestion path from the algorithm from the initial belief or the initial so-and-so stinks to then another video that will get you angrier and then another video because it right. is this is it's not a secret the algorithms are designed to engage you and what gets you engaged is like anger and outrage right so, so this, this, yeah I'm, I'm glad i'm glad you brought this up this, this is where i think the popular conception of the algorithm driving the radicalization is incorrect okay and, the, the, the reason that I think that is because there have been studies, including some of the studies that I wrote about in a recent blog post, which show the exact opposite is happening, that the algorithms actually favor more mainstream content over more extreme or fringe content. So it's actually pulling people in the opposite direction towards the more mainstream stuff. And there's probably good reason for that. And it involves money. Right. <laughs> <laughs> The larger, more mainstream news platforms have more money to spend on promotion, and they're going to make more money for the social media platforms like YouTube. So to, just based on that alone, you can understand why the algorithm would favor that type of content over the fringe content. It's so much more difficult to compete with, with mainstream sources if you are an independent or you know fringe creator, you, you have a major obstacle to overcome to even get your, your feet in the door. So I, I don't think there's evidence to support that idea. And you also mentioned something else very important, which is that people are going to be drawn towards the content that will make them more outraged. Again, this is false. People really don't like political conflict. That's not something that people are drawn to. People specifically avoid political conflict. That's one of the reasons why if you do, if you look at nationally representative polling, they'll ask people, would you feel comfortable with your child, you know, marrying someone of the opposite political party? And a very high percentage of people will say, no, I'm not comfortable with that. And if you probe them on it, they'll say, well, it's not because I think the other people in the other party are terrible people. It's because I don't want us to have fights at the dinner table or at Thanksgiving about these types of things. So the fact that people go to such great lengths to avoid being angry and to be upset about politically relevant stuff, it basically proves this idea that the algorithm moving people towards stuff that makes them angry is wrong. People will avoid those things. Now, the evidence from social media platforms does support the idea that when people are experiencing a higher degree of emotion, they will be more engaged with the platform itself. So we tend to, you know, be more involved with things that that arouse some degree of emotion, but that's not necessarily tied to a specific emotion. It could be joy or happiness. It could be curiosity. It could be sadness, it could be fear, it could be, you know, a, an array of other emotions. And the specific emotional arousal that might prompt more engagement or interest in a platform is not very well understood. Wow. 
Okay, then I'm gonna reframe. Okay. So I'm I'm not gonna get into the thinking. I'm staying away from the brain. Okay. Um, I don't think I'll say amygdala hijack again. But just taking on the surface, people have been radicalized. They've been radicalized online. They were not like that before. Now they spend all their time researching online, neglecting their family, screaming at loved ones, cutting off contact. So there's certainly enough of these reports. But all these people did not believe that there are lizards in human suits before this process. So so if we're taking it outside the, the framework of this is your brain on social media, these are the algorithms, it's happening, something's happening. And what are your thoughts on on like just looking at the the observable, even measurable changes? Um, in so, people. so what are your thoughts about that? Do you know anyone personally who thinks that there's lizards in human suits walking around? No, no. Yeah. Well, I live in Washington, D.C. Okay, <laughs> so there, there, there ain't nobody who thinks that. <laughs> so I, I think, you know, as I was saying before, these are anecdotal examples. Yeah, and- absolutely. Hey, no doubt about it. There's definitely there's a non-zero number of people who believe crazy stuff, and in a country of 350 million of us, yeah, you're gonna find 19 people who believe in the the lizard conspiracy theory, and you're also gonna find 19 people who illegally voted in 2020. That doesn't that doesn't mean that there was a systemic, widespread voter fraud that would have influenced the outcome of the election. I think, you know, the difference between those two things is that the, you know, 19 people who voted illegally are not going to have a big impact on society, whereas 19 people who believe really crazy things might actually do something extreme and violence that could result in mass death and destruction. So to me, I think the answer here is probably just focusing on people's general mental health, because generally speaking, People who otherwise have their psychological and physical needs met are not going to be susceptible to this kind of radicalization that you're describing. And even among those who are more quote unquote susceptible, you're talking about only 0.0001% of all the people who will you know, encounter this type of content. Like you might see a video about the lizard people, I might see it. And immediately both of us are going to say, okay, that's bullshit and move on. And again, the, the idea that this is somehow systemic is just not, it's not real. Like there, there is no systemic force here happening, but we still do need to be concerned about the very, very small minority of people who are capable of doing very bad things. I think the answer there is probably just, you know, a focus on things like basic law enforcement. If we had better law enforcement up until January uh, 2021, maybe we would have been able to avert the violent insurrection. Um, oh, absolutely. There was, there, was a, there was a massive failure in, in law enforcement there, and people blamed Facebook, which to me seems ridiculous because 
you know, it's not the case that you're going to, I mean, you had the president of the United States, the former president of the United States, making these claims about election fraud, those those statements are gonna get out there to people. Like that's that's going to happen. There's no way to avoid that. The president has the biggest platform of any of us. So yeah, I would I would focus on the general mental health and physical health of people and law enforcement. That those would be those would be my recommendations. Okay. That's interesting. Now and I'm, I'm sorry, I do I do need to you go. You gotta go. Okay. Well next time we'll 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 talk next time. Right, Dylan, you'll talk to me, Dr. Selterman. And um, thank you for being here. I've learned so much. I've got so much more reading to do. And I've, I've really lived, laughed, and grown. So thanks a lot, Dylan. You're very welcome. And um, uh, what's yeah. that? give me the name of your blog. Say your right. blog and everything. Right. Yes. If anyone listening wants to follow me, you can find me. Uh, I have a blog on Psych Today called The Resistance Hypothesis. And I also co-host a podcast with Manny Galvan called A Bit More Complicated. We haven't talked about this topic yet, but I think we will at some point soon. We did a, a recent podcast about the tendency for people to believe in conspiracy theories. That was with Dr. Adam Enders. That was right. our, our most recent episode. So it is you know, tangentially related to this topic. But yeah, folks can follow me on Twitter and Instagram. I'm at Selter Mosby. And uh, yeah. Thanks. I appreciate being being with you here. Thanks for your time. Bye, Dylan. Bye. Well, that was my conversation with the professor. It was interesting. I have a lot to think about. Hopefully you do too. So thank you for joining The Tell with Christine Axmith at christineaxmith.substack.com where this podcast will be posted. Bye-bye.